HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Chris Young, co-author of Modernist Cuisine and co-founder of ChefSteps.com. We've just launched a free course on spherification that's quick and to the point. It teaches the fundamentals and then reveals the details the best chefs use to create amazing dishes that border on culinary alchemy. Sign up now at ChefSteps.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cookies. Cause, oh, cooking what? <laughs> cooking what? Cooking Issues. Coming to you live from a Burnett's Pizzeria in the back of Bushwick, Brooklyn. On the Heritage I think you Radio said Network. host of cookies. I wish. <laughs> yeah, Can we start too. a new show? It's called Host of Cookies. Actually, that would be Tozy's show, right? That would be Christina Tozy's show. She could be the host cookies, of cookies Issues, yeah. Cookies Issues? She can, she can handle that. Maybe we, should just, maybe we could get her to guest host one time and just do Cookies Issues. Right? What do you think, Seth? Sounds good. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Save us a week of work. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, anyway, joined as usual with Nastasha, the Hammer Lopez. How are you doing, Seth? Good. Yeah? Yes. Anything interesting uh, happening? No. Nothing? <laughs> really? Not since I saw you eight hours ago. Uh, remember, the people who are listening haven't heard from you since last week. Yeah, you know, think people, how many years have we done this show, Jack? I think we're going on like three now, right? Three years. Jeez. Something like that. Three years. Nastasha still has not figured out that the people who are hearing this don't hang out with us all the time. Weird, right? Well, I haven't done anything interesting since the last time I spoke. Yeah. All right. Have it's, you? It's kind of sad. Um, have I? I don't know. I feel like I have. I don't know. I have to think about what I did last, uh, last week, and I feel like I have, but I haven't thought about it. What about you, Jack and Joe, in the engineering booth? Uh, I'm going to Bonnaroo with Heritage Radio and Roberta's on Wednesday. Nice. Nice. We're throwing a, a pizza party there. Nice. And well, I did do something interesting actually last Tuesday, right after the radio show uh, in the evening. Heritage Radio had its first ever all host meeting. Right, Jack? All host meeting. Nice, sweet. And uh, you know, uh, maybe maybe after the uh, first uh, break, maybe Jack can say some of the changes that are going to be happening on uh, on our fine network over the next over the next year or so. Right. Lots of fun stuff. Yeah. You want to do that? Sure. All right. Cool. Uh, all right, now, uh, and Joe, I didn't hear anything from you. You doing all right? Well, I'm covering for Jack while he goes to Bonnaroo, so. No, <laughs> so, so not so much. So you're, you're going to be, you're going to be moping. All right, last week we had a question about, oh, by the way, call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We're going to be here for the next 45 minutes or so, ready to answer your questions. Now, last week we got a question in that I wasn't prepared to answer about phosphates and dishwashing detergents. So. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a, a bunch of states and then I think finally the federal government said, you know what, you're going to have to reduce the amount of uh, phosphates or eliminate phosphates uh, in detergents like laundry detergent. Now, the, the big one, has a, it has, it's, a, it's all the same crud, but it, it's, it's, um, 
It's either called uh, – it's trisodium phosphate, but it's also like you know sodium tripolyphosphates and sodium. So it's either like uh, you know TSP, STP, STPP. Uh, and uh, what they are uh, is just awesome detergent awesomeness. From it. So lots of things are like that though, right? So lots of things are amazing at what they do but cause problems. For instance, asbestos. Asbestos? Freaking amazing insulator, completely dimensionally stable, uh, you know, really fireproof, um, you know, awesome from a technical standpoint, awesome, also kills you, you know, so, you know, you can't, you can't have it both ways, you can't have the, the awesome uh, fire retardant mitts and also live, it turns out, um, but... Uh, so the phosphates, it's not quite as bad as that. It's not that it's going to kill you. The issue with phosphates and the reason that they were removed is because um, according to a bunch of research, one of the limiting factors in algal growth in, uh, in water bodies is uh, free phosphorus. Uh, and so if you dump a lot of extra phosphorus into uh, the groundwater and it seeps its way into you know, rivers and lakes and streams and whatnot, you'll get huge algal blooms that will choke, uh, choke out the, the life in there. So that's why uh, they say to get uh, rid of the um, phosphates. Now, phosphates were introduced into detergents, uh, I think, according to some of the research I was doing when I was poking around, you know, fairly soon after World War II. And so what do they, what do, they do? According to Cascade, who is – Cascade, the dishwashing people, who removed phosphates from their detergent, this is what they say the phosphates do. Phosphates helped with dis, uh, dishwashing performance by facilitating food removal, removing the calcium that binds to these types of, uh, these types of food together, and aided in grease removal. They also helped control water hardness and bound suspended soils within the wash water so that they did not redistribute onto the plates. So and so in that little nutshell there, like what what tells you is that phosphates, when specifically this kind of phosphate, trisodium phosphate, TSP or STP, whatever you want to call it, are freaking amazing because they do a bunch of different things. First of all, they do uh, what's called chelate and sequester uh, calcium ions and other metal ions. And what those things do, uh, if you don't do that, is they redeposit uh, on, your, on your, your stuff and make a film. Also, that disgusting film, you know how stars that disgusting film you get around a bathtub? Mm-hmm. Yeah, calcium and stuff, whatnot, different deposits, right? They can also, calcium can bind with the soap. Right, and then make insoluble stuff, and also, uh, it, first of all, like molecules like calcium binding with your soap and your surfactants, your detergents, they prevent uh, th- that detergent from doing the job on the dirt. Right, so they shaft you that way, and I think they can also kind of cause those things to deposit into that awful film scum stuff. Right, trisodium phosphate is, uh, first of all, it's basic, it's alkaline, so automatically it helps break up organic uh, organic. Uh, soils. Most organic soils, including the stuff in dishwashing uh, most of the time, it, it is uh, broken down well by alkaline things, basic things. They break down proteins and fats and whatnot, so, which is why they're awesome at declogging grease uh, in, uh, in a – what am I thinking about? Drains, like liquid plumber, right? So they're awesome at that. They also uh, – they're basic. They also uh, chelate and sequester out uh, calcium and other ions that, that shaft you. Uh, and so they're called what they're, they're what's called builders in the trade. And so they do those phosphates. That phosph- do a number of different things that is very hard for one thing to replace it to to fix. So what are they adding to it uh, nowadays? They're adding sodium carbonate. So sodium carbonate, uh, which you can make, you know, McGee uses it for pretzel. Sometimes you bake the hell out of baking soda and it turns from bicarbonate to carbonate. They add this. It's extremely uh, alkaline, right? So it, it it does some of the stuff that uh, that the phosphates did. Probably with it is, is that's the stuff, I'm pretty sure from, from you know, noodling around, that's the stuff with the new detergents that's turning your aluminum pots and pans all uh, black and disgusting. So the reason why your pots, your aluminum stuff is getting destroyed in the dishwasher now is because of things like sodium carbonate. The other thing, one of the other things they add is sodium percarbonate. So this is actually what's, I looked up what's in Cascade now, the phosphate free. Sodium percarbonate is added and that is the main, uh, one of the main ingredients in OxyClean because it, uh, when you add it to water, it, um, <clears throat> it degrades and turns into hydrogen peroxide and sodium carbonate. So then that also is turning your, your aluminum pots gray and disgusting, but it's got the OxyClean stuff, which is supposed to make up for some of the lack of bleaching and cleaning power when they took out the phosphates. They, uh, they also add sodium citrate, which, you know, we use in cooking all the time. 
Uh, oh, by the way, also, the phosphates, the same reason we use them uh, in, uh, in cooking, they act as kind of emulsifying salts, which is also good at binding the grease and causing it from redepositing. They also have to add uh, sodium silicate, which is actually not sodium silicate. It's a, it's a specialized metasilicate that they use um, uh, along with a modified polyacrylate, which is an anti-redeposition agent. It's the same crap they use in diaper styles to make it in, uh, absorb all the stuff, but that's a, you know, a different form of it. Anyway, so there's a bunch of different things they're adding uh, to it to try and get rid of the phosphates, and they haven't totally gotten it right yet, but they are uh, apparently working on it. But by all accounts, uh, you know, they, they switched because they didn't want to make a bunch of different detergents for all over the country, uh, but they haven't gotten it 100% right yet. But there is, there's good news and bad news. If There's a whole group of people who do not believe this stuff hurts the environment. And if you are one of those people, you can go on the uh, – they also add some enzymes, by the way, to break down proteins before this stuff uh, starts if you have a pre-soak or if you use cold water. Okay. Uh, you can go on Amazon and order boxes of uh, trisodium phosphate TSP. It's going to run you around $8 the pound uh, if you order the uh, Savogran brand. Uh, and if you order that's, – that's Amazon Prime. There's another brand called uh, – well, DAP. They're famous people. But they make a TSP that you can get. I think you can still buy it at Home Depot because uh, <clears throat> it's still used uh, in pressure washing the sides of buildings prior to painting. So what you can do is just like add a, uh, you know, add a teaspoon of that to, uh, to the, your regular detergent and that should phosphorus up the stuff and bring back some of the old goodness of phosphorus. Of course, you might be shafting the environment. What do you think, Stas? Who cares? Wow. No, wow. I was Steve, you. Yeah, Stas is, is going to go out after this. Uh, I, I have a meeting, but she's going to go uh, frack. She's <laughs> going to go frack some stuff. Hey, Dave, you have a caller on the line. All right, cool. So that's the, that's the issue on detergents. Go buy the stuff if you need to. Otherwise, sit tight. They're going to make the stuff work eventually. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, everybody. Howdy. Uh, this is Aaron calling from Oregon. Oh, um, Oregon. Where in Oregon are you again? I your dishwasher thing. Yeah. Uh, I used to be a dishwasher when I first started out in the industry. I basically had the same, well, same problem with all the aluminum pans. We had a very old dishwasher, and we had the big clean on it. Makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. Yeah, well... And by the way, just to go back for a second, uh, you can also buy industrial industrial dishwashing stuff can still have the phosphate in it, so you so you can get it. But that's a that's a that's a, a good note. And I think even the phosphate ones, they will ruin the aluminum somewhat, but just not as badly as the new ones do. The deal is is that the um, the sodium carbonate and things like it, what they do is they eat away the protective oxide surface on the aluminum and then allow it to react with the water more. So that that that's, that's what's going on. So wait, but before you go, the where in where where in Oregon are you? Hmm? Where in Oregon are you? Uh, Lake Oswego, oh. small town, little south of Portland. Yeah, it, well, I still have not made. I, I was in Portland recently, but I still have not made it to Corvallis yet, which is my dream to go to Corvallis during berry season. Uh, but you got a question for me? I do. It's about ice cream. A friend of mine owns an ice cream shop here in Portland. And we were having a discussion about making a sea salt ice cream, about adding it in and folding in sea salt to get crunch of sea salt. Right. But we run into the problem of osmosis and the sea salt itself melting into the mixed and frozen base itself. Yes, uh, I would imagine we had the that. the idea of either powdering it with maltodextrin or emulsifying in some sort of fat. But we hadn't had the chance or the money or the time, basically, to test any of it out. I was wondering if you had any ideas on how something like that might work, if it's possible at all. Well, I mean, if uh, yes, if you had enough time, I'm sure it's possible. What, any time that salt is contacting a, uh, a water-based, uh, like a, a liquid, you're going to get um, – you're going to get – salt melting it's it's just going to happen right so you know you're on the right track you have to protect the salt with something that is insoluble in um in water so for instance you could chocolate coat the salt you know what i mean or you could or you know you don't have to use chocolate chocolate you could use another solid fat like cocoa butter or something like that 
and coat the salt. So if you were to take like a like a panning attachment, I'm sure you could pan malding crystals with uh, cocoa butter and then fold them into your ice cream. And as long as there's no route for the water to enter, I mean, it won't last forever, but it'll last a lot longer than you have now. I mean, otherwise, you're going to have to do something you know, fairly sophisticated, like coat it with another water-insoluble product, like, for instance, corn zane. But the problem with corn zane, corn zane's a, a protein that's uh, soluble in alcohol but not in water. So you would dissolve the zane in high-proof ethanol, toss the salt in it, won't dissolve the salt out, and then uh, you let the alcohol flash off and you get a coating around the salt. I don't know how completely impermeable the zane is, but it's used as a confectionery coating at times to prevent moisture migration, right? But I don't, again, I don't know how long it's going to last. Last. Like the third choice, I mean, the third choice would be, uh, you know, you, you could use uh, what's called an alpha tending emulsifier and an oil, and you mix them, and then as they as they start drying out, they should form a film around the outside of the salt. But you're going to need some sort of moisture uh, impermeable thing. I mean, the the best, I, I mean, the best thing I could think of is something. Th- so chocolate is quite thick. Cocoa butter is fairly thin when it melts, so you might be able to get a constantly churning thing of cocoa butter and get a very thin coating i'm not sure you know what i mean or like just make it into like blocks of sugar and uh and i mean, sorry salt and uh something like like a white uh chocolate or, or cocoa butter some sort of solid fat and then just shatter it grind it into smaller pieces some of the pieces will be totally protected and others won't you'll get some of the crunch from the chocolate pieces anyway but inside of that you'll get crystalline crunch i don't know of a way of preserving individual salt crystals so that they're not going to melt out though does any of this make any sense it makes amazing sense, yes. All right, cool. Um, <laughs> so listen, what, what, what you should do, is, if you try any of this stuff, please like, tweet us back at, uh, at Cooking Issues and let us know how it worked, okay? I will. Cool. Uh, I am actually heading down to uh, the pear orchards this summer. Oh, my God. And, uh, I hope to see you there. Oh, my God. I would love to go this summer. I'm going to try to make it happen. I was going to go to uh, the um, Miami to do mangoes again this year, and it turns out it's been a horrible mango crop in uh, Miami. Are the pears looking okay over there in Oregon? They're coming out pretty strong right now. Sweet. You want to do that, Stas? You want to go to Corvallis? She's like, she doesn't want to go. I'm going to go. Maybe I'll get McGee to fly up, too. All right, cool. So uh, we'll we'll mention over the air if we're going to do it. Anyway, thanks for calling in. Let us know how it works. Well, thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day, guys. You too. Okay, so we had a question in from James last week about making raspberry and other fruit-flavored gins. Hi, Dave, Nastasha, Jack, Joe, et al. Yeah, we don't have the et al today. No et al. No et al today. No et al. No et al. Oh, no et al. It's good. I like that. (laughs) Uh, I enjoy the show and have gotten through the archive, so I'm up to date enough to ask a question. By the way, people... Do not feel obliged to listen to everything that we have said uh, before you ask uh, a question, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, I've recently tried your agar clarified strawberry gin recipe from uh, the Cooking Issues blog with a slight modification uh, from changing from strawberries to frozen raspberries, it not being the season for fresh berries, and easier to get frozen raspberries. It turned out delicious. Uh, the end product is a bit cloudy due to my over-squeezing of the gel, but this settles out nicely on the sitting. Alongside this, I tried classic infusion technique, just putting raspberries into the gin letting it sit in an ISI raspberry gin infusion. Each technique gives a gin which is similarly clarified after letting the ISI and agar ones sit to sediment out. While I foolishly didn't keep the gin to raspberry ratio constant for these tests, I would imagine that I can adjust this ratio to match the color and flavor profile of each technique. Do the new techniques simply provide an improved yield, less berries giving a stronger, better flavor, and more rapid processing? If so, what is a good use for the agar clarification alcohol infusion that gives a clarified product when classic infusions won't? Cheers, James. I think that's exactly uh, right. The benefit of um, agar clarification techniques is that uh, when you do it, you know, you blend the fruit and the, uh, and the product. And so you get, uh, you know, very fast, uh, you know, mingling of the berry and the, the, the gin. Uh, so the, the issue is your, your yield is not going to be as high. So you're going to lose uh, product. I mean, I do it in a centrifuge. Uh, luckily, the enzyme I use, Pectinex Ultra SPL, when I do clarification, uh, is fairly alcohol insensitive. So you can you can blend things directly like that with the enzyme. The enzyme breaks down the pectins, and boom, you spin it out. I would recommend 
even if you're doing regular agar clarification, go on modernistpantry.com, uh, buy some Pectinex Ultra SPL to break down the pectins in your slurry before you set it with agar. You will increase your yield by 20% at least because it thins it out. Um, so, and on regular infusions, you're just sitting a long time making an Akavit. It can take, you know, days, weeks, depending on how strong the infusion is, uh, you know. But again, it, it, it's valid. I tend to, you know, when I'm doing infusions and I want them rapidly, it's either because I don't have time or because I feel that the quality of the flavor is going to change as it sits for a long, long time. Strawberry gin, for instance. When I make strawberry gin, very fresh strawberry gin tastes different from strawberry gin that's been sitting around for a long time. So there, there is changes that take place in it uh, as, as it sits. And so sometimes those changes are good. Sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they're just different. So when I want very fresh flavor, Flavors. I'll do ISI or I'll do uh, – but if you do ISI on berries, you want uh, – on strawberries anyway, you want to slice them very thin so you get rapid, rapid penetration. Raspberries, it's not such a, such a big deal. Um, another thing you can do if you want to uh, do uh, raspberries with a more traditional technique is do a pre-treat of the raspberries with uh, pectin methylesterase, which is Novo shape. I think Modernist Pantry is carrying that now. Uh, that will keep the flesh intact over long maceration periods and then put a lot of the raspberries in uh, and it'll even out. And then both the raspberries should be good and the uh, and the liquor should be good. Most of the time, it's either one's good or the other's good, but not both, right? Right. right. Okay. Uh, oh, call- caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. Uh, this is Dave. I actually saw you at uh, Roberta's two weeks ago. Oh, yeah? And, uh, yeah, yeah and I was in New York, uh, and it was awesome. Like, yeah. Roberta's food is great. They went at WD-50. It was amazing. Nice. So, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, so, yeah, I got a question about uh, induction burners. Um, so I'm about to uh, move into, or I'm moving a coffee shop from one to the other, and the other space is a little smaller. We don't have a space for a gas stove. So I was thinking of getting an induction burner because uh, mainly for, you know, making syrups and we also make a little bit of ice cream there. So uh, just wondering uh, if there's anything I should be looking out for other than size. Well, I mean, I, so he, here's the thing on, on induction burners. Uh, I, I love them. They're, they're great, right? But you got to make sure you have the, the correct power, which I'm assuming you do. Uh, you have to figure out how you want your uh, station set up. So the induction burners, if you're getting portables or movables, right, they come as singles. And I, I wouldn't bother getting the, the little the little home jobby ones. Like some people try to use those in industrial settings, but they they kind of crap out on you sometimes. And a lot of times, you know, when you're doing professional stuff, you don't want them to crap out on you. Uh, and the reason they crap out on you is because they don't have sufficient cooling circuits to run the thing hardcore. And so if you try to overdrive them, they, they shut down in thermal overload. They come back. They don't die permanently. But uh, that's kind of an irritating thing to have happen to you, uh, you know, when you need to get a bunch of stuff out. So, I mean, and, and I think that's the main difference between the relatively inexpensive home ones or the ones that are sold portable for catering that can plug into a regular 110 socket and the much bigger ones the only of the, of the bigger ones you know I've really only had experience with the with the cook tech ones but your main choices are the following you can either get single induction hobs they're obviously the most portable and they take the least electricity but they only take uh, one uh, one pot at a time uh, the other thing is you can get duels now the choice in duels is this they have front back duels and they have side-side duels, right? So the advantage of a front-back duel is that you can, you, can get, you can get one and then you can get another one and stick it right next to it and now you have like a four-burner range and then you can get another one and stick it right next to it and now you have six burners and they're all controlled from the front. Right, which is it seems to me to be a pretty big advantage. Uh, but you know the guys at Sambar had uh, one, and they were having some problems with it. I don't know whether there's a problem with that unit in particular, but the concept to me is very appealing because it allows you to make a choice now and not be shafted for later. Although nobody wants to cook front back if you only have two. Do you know what I'm saying? If you only have two, you definitely want to cook side side. But if you know you're eventually going to gang up four or six of them, then I'm pretty sure you want to go front back. Um, 
The other thing is is that even you know five, six, seven years ago when people were buying uh, commercial induction units, they always broke, always broke. And the, the breaking features were uh, two, two reasons. One, a cook would put a pot down very heavy on the uh, glass surface and shatter it. I saw more than five broken that way. And then uh, the other problem was is that everyone wanted the holy grail of range over oven. And if you do range over oven, especially with the electronics the way they had them you know, years ago, uh, they always burned out. It was like inevitable. So, you know, but it doesn't sound like you're going to have that problem because you're not going hot over uh, – you're not, you're not going hot over hot. So you're not going to have probably cooling issues. You want to make sure that those suckers stay ventilated. So it's going to be a choice for you of, of, of what kind of configuration you want. You know what I mean? Right, right. I mean, okay. I, I would, I would, I would n- don't pay too much attention to, I mean, get like a powerful one, but remember that wattage in an induction unit is not comparable to wattage in an electrical, uh, you know, resistance uh, heated um, uh, range top. Uh, it's completely non-comparable because the, the efficiencies are, you know, vastly different between the two. Uh, so, you know, a much smaller wattage is going to give you uh, in, in an induction unit is going to give you the same output that you're going to get in terms of like the actual heat in the pan as uh, as the as the you know the regular old coil units. And also, you can't make a good conversion between BTUs in a gas range and uh, watts into the uh, into the induction. You know, I've had you know I've done races even with the crappy induction versus you know a fairly good gas, and the, the induction most of the time is going to win because it's directly heating the pan. You get a fur- I mean, you're going to pay more in electricity, no doubt, but it, you are going to have less ventilation requirement and it's going to take less uh, HVAC load to cool your kitchen down should you cool your kitchen down, which you probably will if, you know, probably will somewhat. Uh, so you, you, can, you can win on those. The only ones I really have experience with, though, uh, on the commercial side are the cook techs, and I think they work fine. Uh, but, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with the, with the other brands. Is there like a, a ballpark of like wattage I should be looking out for? Uh, oof. well, I'm trying to. Well, get as high as you can, right? Uh, I mean, you know, they they should be, you know, the ones that run on 220, you should be able to get a couple kilowatts into them, no problem, right? So the ones that you plug into a regular socket are limited to about 1500 watts. That's about the limit that someone's going to want to suck out of a wall socket. So a 15, what's 1.5 kilowatts? So a 1.5 kilowatt induction burner, the you know, the, the standard kind of crappy home models. They are they work fairly well. They're not as good as an industrial you know range like a Jade or one of those things, but uh, they're pretty good. They're pretty damn good. But then, so if you go to the next jump up, like a three kilowatt burner, I think they make three. Uh, but, but look at it that way. Like the most you're going to suck out of a regular one ten is about one point five kilowatts. So above that, you're looking at gravy. If, you, if I, I haven't looked at the specs recently because I haven't bought one, but if they have like a two kilowatt or a three kilowatt, you're probably looking. At at, you know, mucho power into the pan. And right. I, I know they make wok burner units that are like four and five kilowatts, and those suckers are nuts because they, they, they're nuts. They're insane. Cool. Yeah. Anyway. Cool. That was helpful. All right, cool. Uh, well, let us, uh, let us know how it works out. If you have any more questions, give us a call back. Okay, great. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Uh, you guys want to go to the first break? Yes. Coming right back with Cooking Issues. <laughs> Once again, that this is the Meatballers, fans and listeners of Cooking Issues, and the song is called Fish is Fish is Vodka. This is Chris Young, co-author of Modernist Cuisine and co-founder of ChefSteps.com. We've just launched our free short course on spherification, a modernist technique that can imbue a flavorful liquid with the appearance of being solid, a culinary illusion that's broken when the spheres burst with flavor as they're eaten. Our free course offers helpful step-by-step demonstrations of reverse, frozen reverse, and direct spherification. 
We also explore the science behind spherification so that you can go beyond our recipes and create your own to surprise and delight your family and friends. And, as always at Chef Steps, you get the support of a friendly community of experienced cooks and world-class chefs who will answer your questions. If you're interested in learning modernist cooking techniques, if you want more from the creative team behind Modernist Cuisine, and if, like us, you're a fan of Dave Arnold and cooking issues, then we think you'll find a lot you'll like. Sign up now at ChefSteps.com. No, you didn't. So, yeah, Jack? Yep. Uh, well, I was just I was just excited because I'm also a fan of Dave Arnold and Cooking Aww. Issues. I'm glad the guys at Chef Steps are too. You know who else is a fan of Dave Arnold and Cooking Issues? Everybody at Heritage Radio. Aww, yeah, nice. like you said, we had our big first all staff all host meeting. Kind of awesome to get everybody in the same room. But a lot of people, a lot of the founding hosts, the early hosts, in the same room, same time. Um, we just debuted the Summer of Food today, which is a student submission program where people are giving us travel logs and uh, recordings and musings from their Summer of Food, which includes coverage on issues of farming, sustainability, and uh, all sorts of things. So that's really fun. We're opening up a whole new post-production division of the network, lots and lots of new stuff, and I would highly, highly recommend every listener of Cooking Issues go to our website, click on Evolutionaries. And there's an episode of Harold McGee where he tells his whole life story, really, in a, in a very tightly edited, post-produced way. I think it's very fascinating for all fans of modernist cooking. When's that going up? It's up. It has debuted, so it's there for your listening pleasure, archived. The Evolutionary Series on Heritage Radio Network. It's right there on the homepage. Sweet. Yeah. And you have a bunch more that are coming out over the summer, yeah? Tons, yeah. Wiley as well. Nice. Yeah, we edited his. Who knew he was such a uh, competitor, sports guy? He likes he likes the sports. He does. He does. He's damaged like his uh, you know some part of his arm, so he has to get it fixed. I think from like you know re- repetitive, not from punching his cooks apparently, but from cooking. I think he damaged his. Uh, I don't think it was in sports. I think it was in cooking. He damaged I think he it. just always wanted a sports injury, and then you know had to make it happen through cooking. Full contact cooking. Yeah. Nice. McGee's story is really great too. Everyone should check it out. Indian food. Grew up eating Indian food. Well, you know McGee McGee half uh, half Indian also. McGee, sports guy, but not like, you know, competitive. he's like a, a, a runner, has been for a long time. Man runs all the, all the damn time. Did you know that? Did he mention that on the, on, the, on the program? You have to listen and find out. Yeah. I'll tell you something. I hate running. <laughs> no, no offense, but like, I hate running. Like, it's, I hate it. Like, you know how, pe- Stas, do you like running? No. You know how people, like, they say they get this endorphin rush from running, that they, they like it, and then they like to keep running? I've never felt that in my life. You guys? Anyone? Uh, no way. No. Joe? No, I used to I used to run track, but it was never fun. No, no, it's just not fun. Running around, not fun. Uh, although uh, uh, Dax of of my kids, Booker and Dax, not the bar, just got picked for the track team. Nice, nice little mini track yeah. team. Yay. Okay, Rolf writes in, uh, dear Miss Hammer and Nails. So I guess I'm the nail getting hit on the head by. I guess all of us are. There's nails. So Jack and Joe also getting hit on the head with the hammer. Uh, Mustache, by the way, just. Uh, just during the commercial break, totally busted me because I was – remember last week I said that like I was going to go to jail because we couldn't find out when my court date was for my bicycle ticket? I was like, I gave it to you. Where the hell is it? And she's like, you didn't give it to me. You took it back. And we had a big argument and I looked at my wallet. Guess what? It was there in my wallet. Right or wrong? Right. So now she's going to now she's gonna be uh, she's gonna be moody all day as a result. <laughs> all, all, uh, I just don't like how angry you get. How angry? Get? What, what, what? Do I get angry? Jack and Joe, do I get angry? I guess I do. But I don't, it's not, it's like, you know, it's not serious anger, right? Cartoon anger. Yeah, cartoon anger. That's me. That's why no one takes me seriously. Okay. Rolf writes in, Dear Miss Hammer and Nails, following on Tom Fisher's questions about his kissing Kuhn Recon pressure cooker, I can add that mine, circa 2009, has always done the same thing. Bought it while living in France, and the customer service there isn't such that it was worth suffering, uh, suffering the uh, follow-up on it that I would have to do to get it fixed. So I just got used to it. For what it's worth, it's not the secondary slash higher pressure valve, which is the one on the side, uh, but the pressure indicator valve itself. I've taken it apart, cleaned it. It hissed on first use, so it wasn't food contamination. Tried to adjust the tightness of the bolt and the bottom of the pressure indicator. Uh, used to be I could quiet temporarily by turning it while it hissed, uh, as though either the hole of the, or the valve weren't quite round, but no longer. Hope that's useful in your data collecting. Rolf, it is useful, actually. And I've heard 
you know, mine is circa a long, long time ago. But I heard that Kun Recon was having some uh, issues with uh, QC. That's quality control. Uh, having some issues with uh, QC for a while, but that they had it fixed. I mean, I'd like to know how many people have this problem with Kun Recon is, because one of my favorite things about it is that it doesn't leak. Uh, I mean, it's still going to leak a lot less than, you know, some of the other brands uh, like uh, Fagor that, you know, leak by design. Um, but anyway, yeah, I do want that for uh, for my research. Okay, uh, Colin Gore. Haven't heard from Colin Gore in a while, huh? True. True. Writes in about apples. Palm nerds, he calls us. I guess we got some good salutations to, uh, today, right? Dear Palm Nerds, my British girlfriend has been looking for Bramley apples in the United States. They're big, tart baking apples that it seems can only reproduce by having a threesome. Super kinky, triploid action. Uh, so the, the referring to the uh, number of sets of chromosomes. So we are diploid. We have two sets of chromosomes. Uh, so, you know, there's, when you have more than that, it's called polyploidy, Right. So you know more than and so the but the problem is is that uh, usually it's an even number in order to in order to, for the things not to be sterile. So three sets triploid means that usually if you're triploid, you're you know three sets of chromosomes. You are uh, sterile anyway. Uh, you know not you person you the fruit tree not you the person uh, because I don't think that that doesn't work for us anyway. Okay, uh, I recall Brogdale Farm is a massive fruit repository in the UK, but I think you mentioned uh, the US li- uh, having a living library of apples as well. Uh, where is that? Uh, and uh, have you cooked with Bramleys? What makes them so interesting to the Brits? And what other weird fruit sex can you share? Okay, so the issue uh, first of all the. Um, the place is in Geneva, New York. It's – I don't forget how far it is. Maybe like four or five hours from uh, New York City and it's the Geneva uh, Apple Extension. It's an extension of Cornell but the Apple Repository is run by the United States government. It's like Noah's Ark for apples and, and they don't really – like a lot of the people there don't really – some of the people care about the actual apples. But the theory is is that if some new disease comes in, people don't think about it if you don't think about trees a lot. But a lot of our major trees over the past hundred years have been wiped out by introduced uh, pathogens and new tree pathogens. So you know, El- Dutch elm. Uh, disease wiped out the you know the majority of our elms, which were kind of the preeminent uh, street tree. Um, we had our chestnuts wiped out by chestnut blight. They were like the one of the primary uh, you know trees of the eastern forest. You know they they were like from sheer number standpoint were one of the largest numbers. Almost completely wiped out. Uh, now only young saplings grow from the dead stumps. Uh, we have uh, butternut canker killing our butternut trees. Uh, there's just like we have we have a fungus that infects uh, beech trees, another important you know U.S. tree. So you get a thing called beech snap. We have um, introduced uh, things that are killing off our our hemlocks, you know our great conifers. So there's a we have a long, uh, well, I should say long, couple hundred year history of having some of our major and important uh, tree species getting wiped out by uh, introduced pathogens. So what they're worried about is that some pathogen is going to come in and attack all of our commercial cultivars and wipe them out. So what they do is they have thousands of varieties of different apples sitting there, and uh, and you know that way they can figure out which ones are resistant to whatever new pathogen comes in, and then they can create new apples from those. That's why they keep them, and they still haven't successfully uh, ensured the keeping just the uh, the clonal the the you can't keep apple seeds because apples don't uh, grow true to seed, but they can keep they keep the wood frozen in liquid nitrogen, but um, some people say that keeping the, the wood like that so that they can make uh, new grass of it frozen in liquid nitrogen isn't so good because uh, it can cause a sport. So it can change slightly from the parent tree. So people still say you have to grow all the trees. Anyway, that's why it's there. It's a fantastic place to visit. Okay, now back to Bramley's. So here's the thing. Uh, I have not cooked with Bramley's uh, because I've never really done um, – uh, I haven't had a kitchen in the UK and they don't really uh, make, you know, do them so much over, over there. Uh, I mean the Brits, I think they, they just they – just like them a lot. Um, the uh, first, you know, Bramley comes from the UK and uh, was discovered around 1809. It's called uh, a Bramley seedling, and what that means is that it was discovered as a seedling. It wasn't a sport or, or anything like that because what you used to do is you'd spray apple seeds around, like, you know, 20 trees would come up, maybe one of them was good. Because apples, as I say, don't come true to seed. Okay, so the interesting thing about uh, Bramley's triploid thing is that you need two other kinds of apple trees near it. 
to uh, have it work right. And here's why. Uh, so triploid trees don't produce uh, pollen. All right. First of all, apple trees don't like to self-fertilize usually, which means you need at least two different uh, apple trees near each other to get a good crop of apples. Right? Triploid trees have two 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 separate triplet fruit things in general. Right? Acor- according to I don't think he keeps it current anymore, but I'm no one to talk. The fruitblog.blogspot.com. Uh, triploid fruits tend to be larger, which is why a lot of people uh, like them. But the trees tend to produce fewer flowers. Right? And they don't typically produce. Uh, pollen. Now, remember, the apple trees can't pollinate themselves. So you need – normally you need two different kinds of apple trees, right? One, one will pollinate the other. You don't really care what the seeds on the inside of the apples are because you're not going to grow from the seed anyway. Anytime you're going to reproduce the apple, you're going to do it by grafting. Okay. Here's the thing. So you got these two apple trees. Now, uh, the Bramleys is just sitting there doing nothing, doing squat. So you have to wait for the other tree to pollinate it. Right now, here's the other thing. If you want that tree to also produce apples, you need a third tree out there to give pollen to that tree because the Bramleys is shooting blanks. Right? Okay. Uh, so, so that's that. So, some other triploid trees out there, apples, are Ashmead's kernel, which is my favorite uh, kernel. That's word for seed. My favorite all-time uh, drink apple. John of Gold's, Mutsu Crispins, and Gravenstein. So, there's a lot of triploid stuff out there. Uh, now, the the other question is. Uh, what is uh, w- so? What other weird kind of fruit sex is there? Wait, I got a caller. All right, so weird fruit sex after the call. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Oh, hey, I have a question um, about doing chicken. Um, so I end up doing a lot of catering, and I'm pretty unhappy with just the way that chicken turns out in large quantities. <laughs> being able to reheat it, right? Um, for catering setup, and I was just wondering if you had kind of any ideas about how could how I, I could do something that would be delicious and at the same time, you know, somewhat easy to pull off in a kind of catering situation. Sure. How many how like how many people on average are we talking? Uh, let's just say like 125. Okay. And what kind of uh, you're talking like a main course chicken, so a hot? Yeah, main course hot. And what kind of finishing stuff do you usually have with you? Um, with with that, um, well, I have a circulator. I have and a bunch of other stuff I can bring with me. But generally, we just use a grill, or sometimes we have uh, ovens or like fryers or stuff like that. But, right. Um, so is, my I mean, preference is the grill. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I mean the. Uh, so the the issue with chicken, right? Specifically chicken, and specifically main dish hot prep chicken, is that um, in order to crisp the skin out nicely, you need to cook the chicken for uh, a while. I mean, like, like chicken skin has to dry out and render and crisp. That's why, other than deep frying, super fast techniques tend to produce a less than awesome uh, surface on the exterior of the chicken, right? Uh, for and the and the breast meat is just tends to get way overcooked. Right, right. Now, if you get now, so that I would I would circulate the chicken uh, before I would bone it unless you need to serve it on the bone because if you circulate chicken uh, with the bone on it, you can tend to get a lot of pinking and red around it, which doesn't go away. And in catering, that's yeah. like death, right? It's yeah, like death. I mean that's a, I've gone through the circulating the chicken before so many times, and I mean I don't, I'm not against deboning it, but. I mean, I prefer the thighs, and I would prefer not to debone thighs. You know, you know what I mean. Like, I mean, maybe I could just debone the breast or something. But yeah, I mean, the, the issue is especially on thighs with that little short bone. So much red in that bone that the thigh, yeah. the thighs really turn pink. If you, anytime you do a low temp. Like to me, the easiest way to get around the problem of uh, of cooking a bunch of stuff off at the last minute and having is is to do low temp. But low temp on thigh, you're asking for a complete world of hurt if you don't. De- okay. You know, the other thing you could do is you could, if you nitrate them, the whole thing will be pinked and it'll look cured. You know what I mean? And then people don't mind the pink so much. But uh, people freak out on chickens for, like for that. People just don't want to see. Uh, the red, the red chicken. I mean, the advantage of boning, right? Uh, the disadvantage, obviously, is the freaking work, right? Uh, yeah. The advantage of the boning is you can then use the bone scraps to make stocks and gravies without having to get anything extra. People do like eating the thigh, uh, the thigh meat boneless. I mean, what we used to do when we we're doing large scale chicken for hot prep 
is uh, we would bone out the the whole chicken and then roll it like in the skin. We would do the thighs and uh, and uh, drums on the uh, you know sh- you know cut open, glued to the skin, and then breast meat in the center rolled, and then we would poach those off at. Um, you know, uh, in the circulator at like 63, 64, that cooks the breast meat in the middle and almost cooks the other meat all the way through. You can let it ride at like 57, pull it, and then throw it on the grill to crisp off the skin and take that thigh meat up a couple of extra degrees to cook it out. And that, everyone always ends up liking that preparation because everyone gets a little bit of white, everyone gets a little bit of dark, and it's boneless, but it is a lot of work beforehand. The good news is that it's beforehand, so it's not work on site. If you want yeah. if you want to cook the thighs boneless, you're going to have to go to a much higher temperature or just cook it uh, much faster. I haven't done a lot of experiments. My guess is that if you cooked it at 66 and you kept the layer fairly thin or 67, that you would be able to uh, get rid of some of the pinking as long as you cooked it relatively quickly at those temperatures, uh, like in a you know in a in a combi with it going or or something like that. But I haven't done a lot. I haven't had any success with bone in thighs done low temperature. Um, and what is the is the issue when you do low temperature? The red is that coming from? I mean, when you circulate it, the bag is it is the marrow coming out of the bone, or is it more of just the time after cooking for a long time it turns pink? I don't know. It's I'm both. Confused. It's both. It's both. So what happens is is when you suck a vacuum on a piece of chicken to put it in a bag, you know, if you're not using zippies. Uh, that vacuum will cause stuff to come out of the bone, which it, you know, and all the vessels around there, and that will put a lot of the pink and the meat around the bone. And also, uh, the bone is going to act as an insulator. I mean, the same thing that makes it good in doing traditional cooking—it insulates the meat so it doesn't overcook. Right? Is bad in low temperature cooking because it's slower, so it, it kind of protects that. And then you know the the redness, the the how much of the red is denatured is dependent upon the rate of denaturation. So in slow in in cooking that takes longer period of time to heat through uh, up to cooking temperatures, you're going to have more red than you would in a situation where those temperatures are achieved quickly. So it's kind of you're doubly shafted by it. Um, I mean, it can be done, but like you're going to want to either use Ziploc bags or very low vacuums, and you're going to want to push the temperatures a little bit higher than you would otherwise want to push them. So what you could do is you could do your breasts at 63 to 65. I've never done this, but then try to do the legs at like 67 to 68 and see whether or not they're still juicy up at those those temperatures, and maybe those temperatures are high enough to wipe out the pink even with the bones in. But if you suck a hard vacuum, you're never going to get rid of the pink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've run into that a couple of times now. Right. right. Um, okay, that's helpful. Yeah, I guess deboning is probably my best option. It is a pain in the butt, but you do get lots of delicious gravy. <laughs> Thank you. All right, good luck. Right, bye-bye. Uh, so back to weird, uh, weird fruit sex. So uh, seedless fruits, by the way, are one of either two situations uh, happen, right? Either uh, you have a situation back where, where you know, the uh, – The tree is actually pollinated, but no seeds form. I call that the shooting blanks method, right? That's called actually uh, stenospermocarpi, right? And that's how seedless grapes work and things like that. The other one is – this Stas is going to like this one – parthenocarpi, which which means virgin fruit, virgin fruit. And that's how things like bananas and certain figs work because they don't need to be pollinated for the fruit to form, which is weird, right? So like bananas back in the day before they were like, you know, awesome food things have like lots of seeds in them and they're they're fundamentally inedible until they found these ones that had parthenocarpi. So – and there are certain figs that are also uh, parthenocarpic. They don't need any sort of pollination. But Stas, you know how figs are – like the old school figs. You know how they're done, right? Mm -hmm. Here's some weird fruit sex for you. Uh, Wasps go into – there's a male fig tree and a female fig tree, right? They're not on the same tree. And the uh, male ones have the – they're called capri figs, the male trees. And they have this thing called a, synco- a synconia, I think. Synconia? Synconia? Anyway. And male uh, – the wasps – not male. The wasps go into the fig, right? And they lay their eggs in the fig, right? And then uh, the wasps are born and they eat their way out of the fig, right? And they fly to a female tree, go into the fig – 
and try to – they can't get back out again. Lay their eggs in uh, – no, sorry. They die in there. When they die, they don't lay their eggs, I guess. They, no, they don't lay their eggs. They die in there, but they pollinate it while they do. And the fig dissolves the wasp on the inside so there's no wasp left. Wow. That's kind of bizarre That's fruit sex, really huh? Cool, yeah. We got another caller? Yes. Caller, you're on the air. More, fr- more fruit sex after the call. Hey, it's uh, Brian in San Francisco. How's it going? Going all right. How you doing? Good. So I dehydrated my apricots, and I wanted to let you know that it is side-by-side with uh, the ascorbic acid um, on one tray of apricots, and then I did the um, uh, potassium metabisulfate um, for the other tray, and far and away, it, the potassium metabisulfate won. Yeah? Did, was there any off-flavor from the sulfur? I would guess not, right? I did not taste any off-flavor, but in the bath, I could definitely smell... You know that rotten egg, uh, sulfur, sulfur smell. Right, and then it, it should vo- it should volatilize anyway while it's uh, dehydrating. But I should also say that the ascorbic acid that the apricots ended up tasting sour. Really, somewhat uh, from 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 that ascorbic acid that was 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 on the surface. Also, I should say that um, I did get some browning on on the, the potassium metabisulfate. It's not foolproof. I used half a percent um, by weight. And um, uh, you know, I still got I still got some, so maybe I need to to, to increase that. I mean, the one the, I was re- did some reading that um, they use a kind of um, a smoke box where they smoke some kind of sulfur um, uh, dioxide, I guess it is, into the into the box um, when they do it commercially, which is how um, how they make sure that uh, there's no there's no browning at all. Right. Well, some yeah, well, because it hits everything. Some people burn the sulfur. Some commercial people do use the dip, but they use a much heavier duty dip than than the sulfite people for home uh, dehydration recommend. Uh, but you know, it's the same procedure they use to bleach uh, palm fronds. Uh, you know, uh, palm uh, things for making Panama hats. They bleach them with uh, sulfur. They burn sulfur underneath the. Uh, Underneath the palm leaves, so that they can uh, bleach them out for making uh, Panama hats. So yeah, that's an, that's an old school that's an old school technique. How is how is your wife with the sulfur? Any problems? She hasn't tried them yet, oh. <laughs> but I, I think it should be fine because she did she does okay with with most wine with wine. So um, it, it's just the asthma piece which was in question. Right. Well, you know, have an inhaler nearby. She does she uh, she uses she inhaler? uses an inhaler. Yeah. Yeah. Have an inhaler nearby. I mean, if she has most wines without a problem, I you know you're not going to probably get a. Uh, I mean. Reaction. Yeah, yeah. Or at least not one that's uh, life threatening. Yeah, uh, but it was nice to do the side by side. So now I now I have a, a a clearer sense of it. Cool. Tweet a tweet a picture over at Cooking Issues so I can take a look at it if you, if you yeah, can. Yeah, yeah. I'll 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 try to do that with my with my dumb phone. <laughs> uh, but I have another question here, right. um, which is um, I I need a foolproof recipe for mayonnaise because I tried the immersion blender technique that I found on the Serious Heats website and I tried and it, and it, and I couldn't save it and then I I um I tried McGee's. I looked in his uh, keys to good cooking. He said, add, add another yolk if it breaks. And I added that, and I couldn't. And I, and I tried it with a whisk also as well. So I, I need some, some advice on, on um, ratios and technique. Right. Well, did you hear the, did you hear the episode where we uh, – the one with uh, Chris Young on it where, like, my feeling is, is that the main problem is when you're doing the serious eats technique of using the immersion blender without, you know, without any sort of premixing is the uh, – is the size of the vessel? So if you did you did you hear that one? So if you're making the no, I'll go back and listen. Yeah. So like the trick is okay. So I I, I I've been contradicted by a couple of uh, listeners who have you know written in and said that that they can make it normally in a large vessel like a quart container. But I was running some side by side tests using uh, the immersion blender to make the mayonnaise in the immersion blender cup, which is roughly the same diameter as the bell of the immersion blender. And when you do that. You know the egg yolk sinks to the bottom. It like makes an emulsion and then builds very quickly and easily, right? Or right. and then I tried doing it in a quart container and it failed miserably, miserably, uh. miserably. And uh, and I and just like you said, I tried to fix it, miserable, uh, just awful. So when you're making it in large vessels, I mean like when I do it in large vessels, I take a whisk, I break the egg yolk. I hit it. I hit it with mustard vinegar. Hit it, and then very, very slowly drizzle in the first bit of oil while I furiously mix with my hands until you see a stable emulsion forming. Then Did you use a whisk. 
Yeah, I use a whisk. Yeah, but then, but like, but not anymore. Now I, now you know, I, can, I use for small quantities. I do the immersion blender thing. Once you form an emulsion, then you can kind of go ape. You know what I mean? Then it, then all of a sudden, nothing matters anymore. The hard part about mayonnaise is, is the very beginning part, getting that initial stable thing going. So my feeling is, is that if you're doing the quart container situation, although some people say they do it in a quart container, it works. But if you're doing it in a quart container, uh, at least with one egg yolk. Uh, I was unsuccessful because it mixed the egg yolk and the oil together before it had formed any kind of stable emulsion, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so then you're just hosed. Now the the other thing is is that uh, you know you want to you want to make roughly eighty percent oil, twenty percent water uh, base stuff. That's how it works. And McGee and I used to do uh, you know as as part of uh, the Curious Cook was his second book, which you guys should all go on uh, ABE or on Bookfinder or whatever and buy a copy of it. But you know, he goes through there the experiment uh, that you can actually make you know, many quarts of mayonnaise out of one egg yolk. So we used to do that, and we would do it with a whisk. We would get one egg yolk, we would, we would hit it with a whisk, and we would start uh, making – and then we would just make gallons of mayonnaise with the one, with the one egg yolk. Right, that, but you have to keep adding water to it, right? Because if you get too much oil in, the emulsion will break, and then you're shafted, right? So you want to try to stay. But the other hand is, if you don't add enough oil, it's thin. So adding the oil up to around seventy, around seventy-five, seventy to eighty percent, eighty percent. Right when you get there is when it gets that thick mayonnaise consistency. Anything less, and it's going to be thin. Anything too much more, and the mayonnaise is going to break. But you can always add some liquid back in, thin it down, and then build it back with more oil. Okay, uh, I, I got the ratios. Um, do I need to refrigerate it? Because I don't understand how why Japanese mayonnaise is not ever in the fridge. Well, same with New Orleans mayonnaise. Uh, you know, they, they guys in New Orleans keep their mayonnaise out uh, all the time. The the issue usually when you're making mayonnaise, you add acid to the uh, egg yolk portion of it, and over time, the very low water activity combined with the acid will kill whatever ails you in the mayonnaise. At least so they say. But the issue the issue is that mayonnaise right out of the gate is not safe. The Japanese guys, Kupi, they might uh, actually also dope it with something to kill kill anything in it. But my impression from what I've read is that mayonnaise, properly made mayonnaise with an acidifier in it, gets safer over time, not less safe over time. So how long do you think it'll keep? Oh, a long time. You know, my grandma used to – my grandma would throw away any sandwich with mayonnaise on it that was out for more than like 20 seconds. She would be like, oh, the mayonnaise is out, and then she would throw it out. But, uh, I, you know, I don't have any solid numbers for you, but a while. But I would make it in small quantities anyway, though. You know what I mean? Make it in small it. quantities anyway. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try the your I'm gonna try this technique and make sure I get my ratios right. Can I ask you another question? Is there time? Sure. Okay. Um, my my I'm, I make I make kefir and I make also a bread starter, but the problem with having them out all the time is that I got to keep feeding them. Um, so I put it in the fridge to slow the um, slow down the reaction. For, for, for both of them, and I understand they're, they're, they're separate. But my question is, is there a different kind of acid that, that is released at that, that temperature for the fermentation than it would be at, at room temperature, meaning I, I think I read something that there's more, more lactic acid if it's at room temp and more um, uh, some kind of uh, – a, a different kind of acid, maybe yeah, acidic, a, yeah. a, a ascorbic or, or something. And so I'm wondering if, if that's going to – that's a consideration, or I need to bring it to room temp first when I use it and just kind of store it uh, when I'm not using it in the fridge. Thoughts? Right. Well, here's the deal. So uh, anytime you change the either what uh, something is growing on, what the starter medium is, or anytime you change the growing conditions, meaning the temperature at which it's stored or I guess even really the humidity at which it's stored, you're going to shift which bacteria and which yeasts are growing properly in that starter, right? So if you look at any sort of uh, actual fermentation, it's not one specific thing that is growing over the length of the fermentation. Different organisms take over at different stages depending on what the pH is and depending uh-huh. on what the temperature is, et cetera, et cetera, depending on how much oxygen is dissolved. So uh, the, the trick is, is if you want a consistent starter, you just have to do everything consistently. So yes, storing it in the fridge will change the culture, 
right? Uh, somewhat. But when you use it, as long as you use it the same way every time and store it the same way every time, eventually you'll achieve some sort of consistency, you hope. Another thing you can do if you want to store it, and it also changes the consistency, is a lot of people store their starters uh, very much more stiff than you would ordinarily uh, form a starter, and that slows down all the uh, rates of reaction. It's another thing people do. They just dope it with more, with more solids, more flour. Okay, got it. All right, thanks so much. Have a good week. You too. All right, now, on our way out, I didn't get to talk about salt-risen bread this time or hickory nuts. We'll get that to that next time, I hope. But one last uh, fruit sex, my favorite fruit sex of all, is vanilla. So vanilla, vanilla, the bean, the orchid, right? Vanilla is from Mexico. And in Mexico, it's pollinated uh, by a special bee that only grows in Mexico. And when they tried to take vanilla out of the Mexico, they could not get it to reliably produce because it will not pollinate itself. It turns out that vanilla orchids have a chastity belt on them. And vanilla orchid, it's called the orustellum. And the deal is, is that vanilla orchids don't want to pollinate themselves. They want to prevent self-pollination because they don't like, vanilla orchids don't appreciate incest, right? Right Now, uh, so no one could figure out what the hell was going on. No one could get vanilla to produce. On the island of, uh, I guess in French it's Réunion, but it's Réunion in the U.S. language here, right, which is off the coast of Madagascar. In 1841, a slave named Edmund Albius figured out how to – how to, well, what's, what's a polite word to say it? How to sex up the orchid by – Remove it by, by taking the orchid, flipping open the chastity belt and taking it with a little blade of grass and taking his thumb and rubbing the male private parts and the female private parts with his finger and force incestually po- pollinate the vanilla beans. And single-handedly, this slave uh, invented the uh, vanilla trade that coming out of Madagascar, coming out of Reunion, single-handedly. Now – he was a slave, so he got almost no credit at all, right? They, they uh, outlawed slavery uh, soon thereafter in the late 1840s, France did, right? And he just kind of was like left to fend for himself, no money, no nothing. And he actually got sent – he stole some jewelry because he needed – he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. This guy literally was the foundation of this – of what was one of the biggest industries over there. They finally let him out, the Glenn of because they're like, yeah, I guess you did, you know, you did give us all our livelihood. So they let him out, but he died in poverty, in 1880, so it turns out that uh, sexing, sexing an orchid doesn't necessarily lead to wealth and fame. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.